Let us begin with prayer. Help us, O Lord, to always see the power in your grace and the strength of Christ upon the cross so that we may see our own weakness and turn to you in all our needs. Amen. Our text for our sermon is recorded in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 52, verse 13. Look, my servant will succeed. He will rise. He will be lifted up. He will be highly exalted. This is the word of our Lord. This is part of a wider section that actually begins way back in Isaiah chapter 49 about the servant of the Lord, whom it becomes very apparent is the Lord himself. But as we look at Isaiah 49, you have this picture of a sword hidden or a deadly accurate arrow that is not just to save the nation of Israel, but to save the Gentiles. In other words, to save the world. When we begin what is this year's Lent series in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and it goes all the way through Isaiah 53, verse 12, it becomes very apparent what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prays. And he's not shirking from saving you, but he is saying he knows it's going to really hurt to be abandoned by God. And he also knows the physical pain that's coming that the next day. And so he says, Lord, if, Father, if there's another way, let's do that. But otherwise, not my will, but your will be done. It's clear we see he knew he was going to suffer. And when you look through this section of Isaiah, starting at our text at 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12, that the servant of the Lord suffers. During our Lent series this year, using Isaiah, we will ask the question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? Which is our theme for all of our sermons. Now, from here uh, through the end of the sermon, I'm going to preach on my translation of the Hebrew. I want to bring out some of the vocable meanings and a few things where the tense works a little bit more than just being the future. So our text begins, pay very close attention. My servant has the knowledge to bring success. Now, you'll notice it's very good English when our translation that I began with said he will succeed. But the Hebrew has even more to that, like if you're an amateur at playing chess and you sit down and play with a chess master, from the minute they move their first bishop to the end, they have you like a cat playing with a mouse, right? Jesus has the wisdom and knowledge because he's true God who became true man. In fact, it's interesting, the Hebrew tense that's used, uh, we translate it as the future, but it's really an, an ongoing aspect. It's, it's the action isn't completed yet, so it says... He continues being high. It's almost like Isaiah 700 years before the incarnation of our Lord says, now remember, you're going to see a baby. You're going to see a mere man. But do not forget, he continues being true God. And yet he suffers. God becomes a man, is conceived in the womb of a fallen creature like you and I, who would rejoice that she has a Savior. And think about that. For nine months, his human nature would be dependent on her body nourishing him. Ooh, and then we forget because we totally forget what it's like that he's going to have to go through the birthing canal. And he can access his deity and, and remember that. So Jesus even comes and suffers for children as well, even in giving birth. And you and I, when it comes to learning his word, well, let's admit it. We have a hard time listening to a complete sermon. Our attention wanders. 
Bible study, we have a hard time. Sometimes we don't even want to go to Bible study. Our daily devotions, we love them. But if you're like me, sometimes you fall behind and then you start going, oh, I'm having to do double and triple overtime to get caught up. And, and we, we learn things and we go, oh, this is so comforting. And then we turn around and forget that we ever even learned it. It's not that we do that deliberately. We love the word of the Lord, but we have a sinful nature and that's how it works. Now, Christ does not use all the powers of his deity. We call it his state of humiliation until after he rises from the grave. So he uses he, he, he himself is our substitute and he even has to learn the word, even though he is the spokesman for the Trinity, but he doesn't have a sinful nature. He does that for us. So we see, as I've said in plenty of other sermons, when he's 12 years old and, and he gets left behind at the temple, that the rabbis are amazed at his learning. The rabbi and his understanding, the rabbis don't understand he is true God who became true man. He's hiding his deity. He's not making full use of it. But he doesn't have a sinful nature. And so he did that for you and I. And he had the ability to apply that word. And he had the ability and the power to send messengers to share that word. It always amazes me. Like I said, a, a champion at chess. The minute he moves that first pawn, already knowing what he's doing, having the knowledge to bring success. And we see that. As he just walks by several times and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. And it's like John the Baptist is telling Jesus' first two disciples, the disciple John and the disciple Andrew, hint, hint. And then they follow him. Where are you staying? Come and see. And then they run and tell their brothers. And then uh, that guy kind of seems to be from their hometown, Philip. And Philip runs and tells Nathaniel. And it's amazing how Jesus works with Nathaniel. He says, here is a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And, and Nathaniel says, how do you know me? He says, I tell you, before, before even your buddy Philip talked to you, I saw you under the tree. There he just used a bit of his godly powers. And Nathaniel recognizes you're God. Just the wisdom he had to have those, to, to just give them enough glimpse of his deity and, and, and that they would come in. And, and then we're told of that wedding in Cana. And when you think about it, the first miracle that's recorded of Christ's, if he hadn't turned those seven, they were huge barrels of water used for washing. If he hadn't turned those into wine, the people would have been okay. They'd have been embarrassed, but there had been people, that everybody had had some, they just ran out. But he gave them in abundance so that they, they would have extra that they could sell. How he blesses that marriage above and beyond what would be needed. Or think about how he has the ability to apply his word as early on in his ministry as he takes that shortcut, which most Jewish people didn't do. And he goes through Samaria and there's that Samaritan woman at the well. And he doesn't just pound her with the law. See, you and I, we use the binding and loosing keys. We use the binding key when we show people their sin. And we use the loosing key. That's pouring the blood of Christ saying your sin is forgiven. But you and I, sometimes we can't read people's minds, can we? Some people, you almost have to smack them over the head with the two by four of the law for even the slightest offense for it to register. And others, you just look at them and, and their feelings are so hurt. Jesus knew exactly how to apply the law. Go and tell your husband, I have no husband, sir. You're right. You've had five men and the one you're with now, you're shacking up with. You're not even married. And, and when it's all said and done, she runs around town saying, come, I found the Messiah. He's told me everything I've ever done. He knew exactly how to apply the law, exactly how to apply the gospel. And she ran off and became such an amazing evangelist just that day alone. Or look at how he applies it at Peter's denial. He warns the disciples, you're all going to deny me. 
And Peter comes forward with the sword. But then when he denies the Lord so weakly before probably 12 years old, a servant girl for the third time. Does Jesus stand up like I would have been like, I warned you. I warned you. Why? Why didn't you listen? Jesus gently looks at him. That was all the law Peter needed. And it stung. He wept bitterly. But after his resurrection, when Peter's waiting for Jesus to appear again, he says, I'm going fishing, boys, and heads up to the lake he used to have a fishing industry at. And Jesus appears at the shore. Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Remember, Peter denied him three times. And every time he even gets to a point where he uses a different word for love. But he always says, feed my sheep. He has this gentle way. He knows exactly how to apply the gospel. You're forgiven and I plan for you to get to work and be an apostle. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? He takes on human flesh so that he can lift up human flesh. And he has the knowledge to do it because he's not just a man. He is true God who became a true man. And all of that, think about it. He's used all of that knowledge that he brought you into faith after he purchased and won you. And he keeps you in your faith. So... When the rubber hits the road, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To lift you up. Now, the way he lifts you up is giving you eternal life. Again, pay very close attention. My servant has the knowledge to bring success. He continues being high. He continues being God, even though he hides his deity. Had they seen his deity, they would not have crucified him. And yet, he had to be a man so that he could be your substitute. He had to be a man so that he could die. God cannot die. And yet the God man dies, but he does not die according to his deity. He dies according to his humanity. Yet it is the God man, both, uh, both of his natures working together so that the death of the God man is so precious. It doesn't only atone for the sins of the apostles. It doesn't only atone for my sins. It doesn't at only atone for all of your sins. It atones for all the sins of everyone in the world so that the only reason why somebody finds himself in hell is they look at all the, at the work of his love and they say, I don't want none of that I do, or I'm indifferent to it. So why must the servant of the Lord suffer? It's God taking on humanity so he can be tempted as a human being can be tempted. But as God, he can't fall. He can he can be our substitute because he's a human being and we're human beings. But as God, his death will be precious enough to atone for all our sins. So why must the servant of the Lord suffer to give you eternal life? Again, our text says, Pay very close attention. My servant has the knowledge to bring success. He continues being high, and so he will be lifted up. Now, we go into what Hebrew is a vav consecutive imperfect, which is consequential, and so he will be lifted up. And here, I think it's very clear that Isaiah is saying, this is true God who became true man, and he remains true God. But at some point in time, we're going to see him in his state of exaltation. And yet this is said in the passive, he will be lifted up. Now, clearly he's going to take on his, or his deity, use the full powers of it. Again, he'll be exalted. And, and we're going to get into that here in a minute. But when we see the passive, it's a reminder for us. How do we know that our sins are atoned for? Somebody else lifted him up. And when I hear these words, I cannot help but to think of the words Jesus said to Nicodemus, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent Pharisee who becomes a believer when Jesus tells him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, uh, the people grumbled they, against God. They had to trust God would be true to his word and look at that serpent on a pole. He's just as it has to be lifted up. So the son of man must be lifted up. And that's his crucifixion. If you feel the pain of your sin, you have to look to Christ on and off the cross. 
And it's amazing how he had the knowledge, the ability to bring about the success through which he would spill his blood so that you and I would be saved. He knew the Sanhedrin, that's made up of the chief priests, the chief priests and and, and other prominent people, the chief priests who daily made the sacrifices that pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're going to get into that a little further when we get into this section of Isaiah in a few weeks. But they instead, they got jealous and they worked against the Lord. He planned to use them and the prominent leaders who were all part of the Sanhedrin and that should have been saying, yes, this is clearly the guy who fulfills scripture. Instead, they said, we better murder him. He's going to challenge our positions. If he's the sacrifice for sins, we no longer need a chief priest, right? He is the chief priest. But it's not that God makes plans and foreordains that we sin. That is not the case at all. It's that God knows everything and knowing everything, he knew their sins, so he planned to use it and even had it recorded by the Old Testament prophets so we would recognize it and and have our faith strengthened in it. So he takes the Sanhedrin's envy and he uses that so that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, how else does he do that though? We have to remember he has a disciple whom he showed with the other disciples a lot of grace. He even got to do miracles. He got to proclaim the Savior is here. He got to hear Jesus teach him directly about God's grace and his love. And yet Judas hardened his heart against it. Judas got greedy instead. And Jesus, according to his deity, along with the Father and Holy Spirit, knowing that they didn't foreordain that Judas would have to betray him, knowing that Judas would would betray him. They had it recorded by the prophets who would be recognized, but they also used that so that Jesus would be arrested away from the crowd so that none of those who were following Jesus would be hurt. And he knew the disciples were going to betray him, or not betray him, sorry. He knew that the disciples were going to flee away, and yet he used that to protect them. And then he stands before Pilate. It bothers us when we hear of an abuse of authority and somebody getting injured and, and who was innocent. It, it, it upsets our whole society when people abuse their authority. Well, Pilate was a coward. He says, I find nothing wrong with this man. He washes his hands of the whole deal, but still he hands Jesus over and they couldn't crucify him without Pilate's permission or else they'd have been guilty of murder. And what does he use as well? He uses those cruel guards who get their cruel enjoyment by beating him and mocking him. It's not just the Jews who crucified the Lord. It's the Gentiles. And if you and I had not been sinners, we would, he would not have needed to be crucified. But he uses all of that so he ends up on the New Testament altar where he will spill the blood. And he would have blood because he's a man, but it's the blood of the God-man so that all of our sins would be atoned for. How? Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To sprinkle you with his blood. And in fact... We remember that it says, pay very close attention. My servant has the knowledge to bring success. He continues being high. He might hide his deity, but he uses his deity to sprinkle us with his his blood. So it's the blood of the God man that pays for our adoption, that washes our sins away so that you and I have eternal life thanks to his suffering servant. So that you and I are lifted up, adopted as God's children. Now, again, when it says, and so he will be lifted up, here's the bigger picture that Isaiah has in mind. Notice it says it's passive. Jesus dies. His last two words are, it's finished. And then he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. If the work of your salvation was not finished, that tomb would not be empty. But God the Father raised him up. Scripture makes that clear. God the Holy Spirit raised him up. Scripture makes that clear. And God the Son raised himself up. 
It's saying he will take life back on and he will be seen as God again. His resurrection means your sins are paid for, but it also means you will rise. Let me read what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came by a man, the resurrection of the dead also is going to come by a man. For as in Adam they all die, so also in Christ they all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, and then Christ's people at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has done away with every other ruler and every other authority and power. Do you catch what's going on there? I plant things in the very short Wyoming spring I enjoy. And, and oftentimes, whether, whether it's the pumpkins I enjoy planting or my, my grape vineyard, there's always first fruits. The rest is going to come sometimes a month later, but there's always that first one and it's exciting. That's Christ. He rose from the grave and he's ruling for you. We're going to get in that in a minute. So his resurrection is your resurrection. He's the first fruits. You and I come later, but you will rise. The new heavens and the new earth is yours. A glorified body is yours. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To make his resurrection your and my resurrection. Now again, we're told, and so he will be extremely exalted. Now in a minute, I'm going to talk about how that means his ascension. But in the meantime, let's talk about how you exalt him extremely. When a person believes, do your best and God will do the rest, they are stealing glory from God because Jesus did all the work to save you. When a person believes Christ made it possible for them to earn forgiveness, they're they're taking away from his glory. He earned your forgiveness 100%. But when you come to the Lord and you say, Lord, here's my filthy sin. I can't help it. I struggled again and I fell. And then you trust he's washed that sin away. What a tremendous glory you give him. That is is the greatest act of worship we give him. And when we worship him, we are exalting him and glorifying him. But it doesn't end there. I mentioned the binding and loosing keys earlier. Not in a pharisaical way, but when you go and tell your neighbor, show them their sin so that you can show them you desperately need a savior. And then you use that loosing key. You have a savior. Your sins are forgiven. Are you glorifying him? Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? To make his resurrection your resurrection. And in the meantime, until you rise, to be glorified through your witness. Now, the last part of this one verse of this bigger prophecy says, and so he will be lifted up and he and so he will be extremely exalted. We cannot help but to picture Christ's ascension when we understand 40 days later, Christ ascends into heaven. He goes before his throne to rule again the throne he had left to take on human flesh and Back, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 23 through 27, the Apostle Paul tells us, But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, and then Christ's people at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's done away with every other ruler and every other authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Death is the last enemy to be done away with. Certainly he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, when it says that all things have been put in subjection, obviously that does not include the one who subjected all things to him. But when all things have been subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him in order that God may be all in all. 
All of this since he's ascended, he is ruling to put all the powers underneath him. And on the last day, it all goes under God the Father again. But when you think about it, why is he ruling? It simply boils down to he's ruling over all creation, not only to bring you in your faith, not only to keep you in your faith, but to make good and sure you get the new heavens and the new earth, the glorified body, everything. And so why must the servant of the Lord suffer? He had to suffer to purchase and win you to be God's child. But through that suffering, then he rises and he rules over this creation to give you eternal life and keep you in there. So he's ruling for your eternal benefit. Let's wrap this sermon up. As we ask the question, we'll be asking through several other sermons. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? He's God who became man. So he came down to lift you up to give you eternal life, to sprinkle you with his blood, to make his resurrection your resurrection, to be glorified through your witness, and to rule over all creation for your eternal benefit. Amen. And now the Lord lets you, his servants, depart in peace according to his word, for your eyes have seen his salvation, which he prepared in the face of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of his people, Israel. Amen.